I was in high school, my home church decided to embark on a new missional opportunity. I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, so we were just outside of the Washington, D.C. area, and we decided to participate in a thing called Sunday Suppers. And Sunday Suppers was a program that was shared by a number of churches, and every Sunday we would get together, we had this van, and we would fill it with hot food, and we would drive to an area inside of D.C. where there was a very, very large contingency of the homeless population. So on Sunday afternoons, we would gather in the kitchen at the church, and we would cook this food to get it prepared, and we would make these brown bag lunches with hard-boiled eggs and cold-cut sandwiches and just tons and tons of food. And then we'd drive into the city, and we'd go near one of these metro stops under which a lot of people were living. And the idea behind Sunday suppers wasn't to just bring food, but we also brought tables and chairs, and we set them up underneath this overhang, and we ate food with those who lived there. It was our way of having table fellowship with them, um, not only to feed them, but also to show them their worth and their value. And then some of us who were older, we would leave and we would take the brown bag lunches and we would go to these, what are called like tent areas where a lot of people were living in tents in different parts of DC. And we would give them this food and just say, hey, hope, hope you have something to eat tomorrow. Here you go. And we did this over and over again, and there were the same kind of volunteers who would participate uh, every month or so when we were doing it. And I remember one time going, and I was getting older, I was getting toward the tail end of high school, so some of the adults felt like I could be part of some of the more adult conversations. And we had spent the whole evening, this whole Sunday evening, feeding folk and sitting with them at these tables and these chairs and literally breaking bread with them. And as we were packing up, one of the men from my church said, this is such a waste of time. And I remember everyone was just kind of silent because we couldn't believe that someone said that. And, and so someone pushed back and they said, well, wh- what do you mean it's a waste of time? And he said, if we keep showing up here month after month, giving these people food for nothing, it's never going to encourage them to, to go find a job. They're never going to want to turn their lives around. If we keep giving them handouts like this, nothing's ever going to change. I think this is a waste of time. And one of our middle school girls said, I think you're wrong. She said, I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Our scripture today comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Hear now God's word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Lent is a really, really strange time in the life of the church. Yeah, during Advent, we, we, we reawait the baby-born king in Bethlehem, which is bizarre in its own right. The, the author of the cosmos condescends to dwell among us in the least likely of places among the least likely of people. But during Lent, 
During Lent, we hear about sin and shame, the need to lament and repent. We, we sing songs about death and crucifixion. We gaze inwardly at our wanton disregard for the good, the true, and the beautiful. But Lent, contrary to how we often talk about it or even embody it, isn't really about sin, and it's definitely not about punishment. It's a time set apart for us to behold God so that we might see ourselves and all things in light of God's love and devotion toward us. In other words, Lent is a strange time of good news because in confronting the truth, we're able to get rid of all the trivialities and falsehoods in our life. During Lent, we're forced to look at the cross and our complicity in it, and it gives us the space to admit that nothing is as it should be. Nothing is as it should be. If things were as they should be, Duke would have beat UNC last night. Am I right, Frank? There you go. I knew you brought your UNC hat. But things aren't as they should be. Not only about the trivial things like who wins a basketball game, but here in our local community, over the last week, here are some of our headlines. Entire apartment complex forced to evacuate into a market where there are no available rentals. A student fires weapon inside of middle school bathroom. Campsite for homeless people catches fire. That's just in Roanoke in the last seven days. And each of these incidents, sadly, can be attributed to our own selfishness and our own sinfulness. Because when we care more about, let's say, our wealth or our freedom or our clean streets than the well-being of other people, we further prove that we've all behaved badly. Things are not as they should be. And it's not just even the headlines that we read in the paper. Lent Ollie forces us to come to grips with the fact that even beauty is not as it should be. Beauty cannot save the world at least not in the ways that we want it to. All of our cultural achievements, all of our aesthetic sophistications, all of our programs of spectacular progress, they cannot deliver us from the evil that is working within us and even without us. You know, in the strange new world of the Bible and the tradition of the church, we are warned again and again about the dangers of beauty because beauty uh, tricks us into believing that all is well when in fact all is mostly hell. Beauty is fleeting and finite, and no matter how hard we try to put effort into things, those things cannot save the world. On Tuesday night, there was a benefit concert in Europe that featured the music of Ed Sheeran, Camila Cabello, and other artists, and they raised over $21 million for Ukrainian refugees. It was a two-hour live stream collection of performances during which the myriad array of musicians pleaded for an end to the war that's happening in Ukraine being waged by Russia. $21 million in one concert. I mean, that's no small feat. But you know what happened in Ukraine? Nothing. The bombs kept falling. Cities kept crumbling. Families kept fleeing for fear of their very lives. Beauty cannot save the world. In Jesus' prelude to his passion, it's the eve of Palm Sunday, he arrives in Bethany, which comes from the Hebrew word, the place of the poor. And he goes to the home of Lazarus, you know, the one he raised from the dead. And while we're on the subject, it's always notable to me in this moment that Lazarus says nothing. You don't think he could have said, hey, thanks, JC, for bringing me back? 
Mary and Martha decide to throw a dinner party for the Lord. They did, after all. They were grateful that Jesus brought Lazarus back. And maybe they're sitting back and they're, they're enjoying their appetizers when Mary bends down to the floor with a pound of Chanel number no. 5. She pours it all over Jesus' feet and then she uses her hair to wipe them. And Judas is there. Judas, the one who's going to betray Jesus, and he jumps up and he says, Woman, what is wrong with you? That perfume is worth $50,000. Why didn't you sell it? We could have given the proceeds to the poor. Jesus, ever cool, calm, and collected, says, Leave her alone. She bought it for my burial. There will always be poor people, but I won't be here forever. Now, it's Lent, which means it's a time that we can admit how sinful we are. And when we hear the story, I think it's okay for us to admit that we think Judas has a point. I mean, that's a waste. $50,000 down on the feet of the Lord when it could have been used to feed some poor people. We know we're not supposed to identify with Judas, but he has a point. It is a waste to pour out this perfume. And Jesus' words are, are rather offensive. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Come on, Jesus. Don't you know that being a Christian is all about making the world a better place? What a waste. Think about what we could have done if we had $50,000 cash to spend. It's embarrassing to hear the Lord speak in such a way. And maybe embarrassing isn't the right word. Maybe it's terrifying. Maybe it's a little threatening to hear Jesus talk in such a way. Because his response to Judas threatens to upend everything we think we know about how the world is supposed to work. Because our world operates under the assumption that whatever ails us can be fixed by us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is good and right for us to dig deep into our wallets and purses to help those in need. We do have an obligation to love our neighbors and our enemies as ourselves. We need to believe in a better world. We need to have hope for things not yet seen. The only problem is we are not the hope of the world. If we were the hope of the world, we wouldn't need newspapers to tell us what's wrong with the world because there wouldn't be anything wrong with the world. Remember, some of the most awful and horrific events in history have been done in the name of progress. But transcendent hope, and I mean real hope, hope for things we can't even yet imagine, it can't come from us. It has to be something done to us. And that kind of hope has a name. It's Jesus. The extravagant gift of this perfume poured out by Mary, it reveals to us that unlike Judas, she knows that Jesus is the only hope we've got. She therefore can do something wild and reckless because she recognizes the wonder of the cosmos who's sitting at her dinner table. She knows that true gifts, like perfume and the incarnate one, they cannot be controlled. And even though we can't help but agree with Judas, we also know in some way, shape, or form that Mary is right. We all encounter extravagant gifts all the time that disappear just as soon as they arrive. A first light band can spend hours and hours and hours practicing and practicing to stand up here in the chancel area, play for 12 minutes, and then it's gone. Never to be heard in that way ever again. A teacher does the same thing with every lesson, just as a preacher does with every sermon. Flowers. Flowers are given in honor and love and respect only to die and wither shortly thereafter. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead only for Lazarus to one day die again in the future. Why? It's such a waste. 
Well, love and hope are strange things. And without them, we are nothing. Judas rebukes Mary because she could have helped the poor, and yet Judas lacks the vision to see that Mary is actually helping the poor. She pours out the extravagant perfume on the poorest of all, God in the flesh who condescends to dwell among us. I think sometimes we read the story and we forget that Jesus, in large part, was a beggar. And she shows him worth and value. She gives value and worth to the very people that Judas is advocating for. But Judas, he's got his head stuck on earthly things. He believes that the only real and important change can ever come out of his own goodness and his own charity. Mary, however, she has her head on divine things. She sees somehow that the one sitting at the table is the only one who can ever really make something of our nothing. Now, does this mean that we don't bear responsibility for the last, least, lost, little, and dead? Well, on the contrary, this little dinner party disagreement is a profound declaration about what the church is supposed to do in the world because the world is an absolute mess. It is going down the drain and the church exists as a witness to the value and worth of those that the world throws away like trash. Lazarus was dead, wrapped up in a tomb, and Jesus brings him back. The 5,000 have nothing to show for their faithfulness except for hunger in their bellies, and Jesus feeds them for nothing. The 12 disciples, they abandon Jesus, they betray Jesus, they deny Jesus, and still he breaks bread with them and he returns to them on Easter. You see, wherever the world sees failure and brokenness, Jesus sees value and Jesus sees beauty. But beauty, beauty is a fickle thing. It is fleeting and is often wasted. Beauty will not save the world, but it might make it a little more bearable. Only the world that cannot save itself will be saved by God, and only the beauty that cannot save the world is worth saving at all. You see, in God's weird and wondrous way, Jesus himself is the nard, is this perfume purchased at a great price to lavish upon a dying world. As Christ's body in the world today, we are called to be symbols of broken beauty for a world that cannot and will not save itself. The only reason we have hope is because we know Jesus and him crucified. Hope measures the distance between the now and the not yet. You can only have hope if you've known hopelessness. Were it up to us to change the world, nothing would ever change except for the fact that maybe the poor would just get poorer and the rich would just get richer. But it's not up to us. Jesus is the hope of the world. Mary anoints his feet. It's a reminder for us that by the end of that week, those very feet will be nailed to the cross. Jesus comes to a world that did not request him, that did not even really want him, because when push comes to shove, we'd rather take matters into our own hands. Which is another way of saying that when Jesus arrives with proclamations of grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness, when he announces the arrival of a new age called the kingdom of God, when the first will be last and the last will be first, what do we do? We nail him to the cross. Things are not as they should be. No matter how hard we try and no matter what we do, there will always be more for us to do. The good news is that the one thing we really need is already done. It's already finished in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Though we are unworthy, Christ makes us worthy. Though we have sinned, Christ offers pardon. Though we are empty, Christ proclaims we are enough. We are freed from the burden of being God. We, like Mary, can do wild and reckless things because Christ is the hope of the world, not us. We can have crosses that are gold. We can have beautiful painted crosses, stained glass, whatever we want to do to try to make beauty out of a symbol of death. We can try as hard as we want, but the cross is death. It is suffering. It is shame. It is torture. And yet for us, it's also our salvation. It is beauty and brokenness. Beauty will not save the world, but God does. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.